Hi, I'm Yudi Bunyamin and welcome to the Neumann Talk, a podcast where I meet past winners of the Australian Mathematical Society's B.H. Neumann Prize to learn about their journeys through the world of mathematics. This episode's guest is Dr. Adrian Dudek. Adrian grew up in Perth and went to the University of Western Australia, or UWA, where he completed a Bachelor of Science with honours majoring in pure and applied mathematics. In between completing his undergraduate studies and starting his PhD, Adrian was a lecturer and numeracy skills advisor at UWA. These days, Adrian is a derivatives trader at the trading firm Optiver. But before leaving academia after his PhD, Adrian made many contributions to mathematics. To date, he has 14 publications, the most recent one appearing in 2019. He also left his mark on the mathematics education and outreach space, including as a senior community ambassador for mathematics with ANU Student Equity. Adrian won the B.H. Norman Prize in 2013 while he was a PhD student at the Australian National University, working under the supervision of Timothy Trudgeon. What do you remember of your Neumann talk, Adrian? Uh, not a whole lot. Um, I remember what it was about. I don't remember being in the room when I gave it. Uh, yeah, I can tell you what I remember. I'll tell you what it was about. Um, it was during the first year of my PhD, and it was about prime numbers, specifically some work that I'd done on prime numbers. So... Um, Basically, what I was trying to do was to prove that there was a prime number or that rather that there is at least one prime number between any two consecutive cubes. So if you think about the cubes, one cubed is one times one times one, which equals one. Two cubed is two times two times two, which is eight. Three cubed is 27 and so on. So you've got these numbers and um, it feels like there's fairly big jumps between them. One, eight. 27, 64, and so on. And I was trying to prove that there was a prime between any of these two cubes. And a lot of people look at this or think about this and they say, well, yeah, for sure there's going to be a prime between them. I mean, from like 27 to 64, that's that's quite a big gap. Like, yeah, for sure there's going to be a prime number there. Uh, however, like the gap between cubes actually becomes quite small as the numbers get bigger. And that's, that seems absurd, but what I mean by that is the gap between cubes becomes relatively small to um, the first cube. So if you think about the distance between x cubed and x plus 1 cubed, the difference of those two is going to be, what do you reckon? You have to expand out x plus 1 cubed. So it's going to be like 3x squared. So um, someone... Someone can fact check that. But yeah, it's going to be 3x squared. <laughs> and 3x squared is going to be small relative to x cubed when x is really large. Anyway, so it turns out that it's not that straightforward to prove that there is a prime between any two cubes. But what I was able to do was to prove that there is a prime between any two cubes as long as we take cubes that have more than some ridiculous amount of digits. So as long as we take really, really big cubes we will always be able to find a prime between any two consecutive cubes. Now, someone had already done this in like 1919 or 1920, sometime around 1920, uh, but they hadn't actually given what the number was. They just said, there's a prime between any two consecutive cubes um, so long as they are sufficiently large. So what I was working on, and this is very similar to a lot of problems I worked on during my PhD, was to try and quantify sufficiently large actually meant for that problem. So um, the actual result that I came up with was that there's a prime between n cubed and n plus one cubed, so long as n is bigger than e to the power of e to the power of 33, which is just some really big number. So do you remember where the conference was? Hmm. I think it might have been in Sydney. I can't remember. Yeah, I can't, I, I'm pretty sure it was in Sydney. Is that right? 
Actually, I did look this up. <laughs> uh, yes, it was. <laughs> it was at the universe. It was at the University of Sydney. Oh, there you go. That that's where I live. That's where I live now. Okay, you think I might know that? Yeah. You said that this was in the first year of your PhD. So that was your first OSMS, probably. Well, yeah, maybe. Or I think I might have gone to one the year before. Uh, no, I think that would have been my first one. Yes. And you've probably gone on to like many OSMSs since after you won. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Because I wanted to lord it over all the other people there. Uh, I thought I'll, I'll nip this in the bud nice and early, and then I can uh, walk around like a legend for the for the remainder of my time. Yeah, I I mean that's something we have in common. Most Norman winners win almost towards the end of their PhD, and you know, I think you are one of the few people who've won. Even in, I think there are very few people who've won in their first year because if if ever they win early on, it's their second year of their PhD. So like, did you ever feel pressure after that? Like whenever you went to Austin Mess or any other conferences, that like I have to give a decent talk mm, yeah kind of yeah a little bit uh but it, I, I don't first of all i don't think it's surprising that uh, i think it's more surprising that people win it later on because what you need to give a good talk is a you know a bit of um a bit of sort of showmanship you need a bit of energy you need a bit of enthusiasm and you're more likely to have that at the beginning of your phd than at the end of your phd at least from what i've seen that's very interesting that you say it. We should be seeing more winners early on. I mean, maybe it's because PhD students very early on don't tend to think they're ready to go to conferences like OSTMS, you know, or any conferences for that matter. Well, perhaps, yeah. I mean, I had I, I had this result very early on that I could talk about, so I, I spoke about it. My my talk in particular, it was to be honest. I might be a little bit biased saying this. It was a bit hard for me. Not to win, not because I'm a good speaker, but because the content was quite interesting. So um, I'll give it to you very short, but like um, to prove that there's like a prime between any two sufficiently large cubes, you have to use the Riemann zeta function and you sort of have to tread very close to a well-known problem called the Riemann hypothesis. And uh, that itself yep. is a million dollars. Yep, yep, that's right. It's very famous. <laughs> the famous real hypothesis. Yep. Yep. yep, so a million dollars if you solve it. That's massively underpriced, by the way. Like it's just, uh, someone who solves that, like it should be, it should be in the tens of millions, in my opinion, is probably the correct price for a problem like that, maybe even more. Uh, and that, that's coming from someone who spends all day pricing things, obviously, as well. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, yeah, so you've got this million dollar problem. Okay, the audience perks up a little bit. And uh, so how does it actually work? Well, um, you have this function called the Riemann zeta function, and this function has a bunch of zeros. So a zero is just a thing that you feed into the function so that it spits out the number zero. So for example, if you want to know what a zero of the function sine of x is, it's whenever you put in, well, if you put in x equals zero, sine of zero is zero. So zero is a zero of sine of x, uh, but also the number pi is a zero of sine of x because sine of pi equals zero. So for the Riemann zeta function, if you look at all of the, its zeros, so all of the numbers which go in to make the function spit out zero, each of those numbers gives rise to uh, like a waveform, like, um, like a note, if you like. A musical note, and um, the more of those notes that you play at the same time, the more you resolve the distribution of the prime numbers. So you can see, and I had this in my talk, this visualization of, you know, here's what happens if you take ten of those zeros, turn them into musical notes, and play them at the same time, and you get this really sort of shaky, um, sort of crazy shaky waveform, but it looks a little bit like a staircase, and if you take in a hundred zeros and play all those 100 notes at the same time, you get a, you know, it looks more like a staircase. It's a bit clearer now. And basically what you're getting is you're getting a staircase over the counting numbers where you step up every time you hit a prime number. So um, the main idea behind the talk is, is one that's been well-known for, a, for a, you know, a very long time. And there's probably already, I think there's already many good talks on this already that you can find on YouTube. But yeah, every single zero of the Riemann zeta function gives rise to this musical note. And the more of those you play, the more at, like at the same time, they superimpose and give you this beautiful like staircase over the prime numbers. So there's this really powerful idea. And all I had to do was, you know, take that powerful idea and, you know, plop, put my research on top of it. And um, 
yeah, I mean, the talk went down quite well because it was backed by a really, really good idea, like a really beautiful idea. So did you think you were going to win, like, I mean, at the time? Well, to be honest, like, I've given better talks. I've, I've given talks where I've thought, oh, that was good. That went really well. When I gave that talk, hmm, I was pretty tired. I just spent a week in Germany at um, the Heidelberg Laureate Forum, which is, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of the Heidelberg Laureate Forum. A lot of people have these days, but it's like a, it's like an event every year in Heidelberg, Germany, where uh, winners of prizes in like maths and computer science get together and meet with uh, young and upcoming researchers. So if you haven't heard of it, uh, definitely you definitely want to look into it. Yeah, so I was I was there for a week meeting with sort of Fields medalists and um, sort of is it the Turing Award or the Turing Prize for computer science? Yeah, so I was meeting with really incredible mathematicians and computer scientists, and uh, I sort of got on the plane, came to Sydney, and I was pretty tired, jet lagged. It wasn't a great performance, but I think uh, yeah, I don't know if I won the Neumann Prize or if sort of the Riemann hypothesis won it. Yeah, I'm not I'm not too sure. But I mean, that's the thing is that your work during your PhD is sort of of that flavor of what you've just described, right? Like Riemann hypothesis stuff, prime number stuff, the kind of stuff that like a lot of people would say like, are like buzzwords in pure maths, you know, like that's what like people always talk about the Riemann hypothesis being this big unsolved problem. You know, it's the poster child of big unsolved problems. Like, well, maybe I should start by asking you, you know, is that really how you would describe what you did in your PhD? And the way I like to phrase the question is that if not you, but if I were at a pub speaking to a random person and they asked me, what does Adrian do? What's Adrian's research about? What should I tell them? Well, you can tell them that I walked through the field of number theory and I plucked fairly low-hanging fruit from the many trees that were available. What's my research about? I solve problems in number theory, but the problems I solve, there's probably not too many people asking them. And that's fairly true of a lot of research these days. I mean, there are so many researchers, there are so many articles, like it's all very... It's all growing quite exponentially. But what I did specifically was I'd find a problem. I thought, this is interesting. No one's asking the question, but I'm going to ask the question. And then I'd solve the question or I'd, I'd answer the question. So I worked on a range of things. I looked at the distribution of primes. Are there primes between cubes? I also looked at um, some problems in additive number theory. So there's a very famous problem called Goldbach's conjecture, which a lot of people have heard of. And it's the question that for every single even number, starting with four, can you write it as the sum of two primes? So four, yep, that's two plus two. Six is three plus three. Eight is five plus three. 10 is seven plus three. So you can, um, yeah, okay. It looks like if you take an even number, you should be able to write it as a prime plus a prime. It's not known if this is true. It is known, however, uh, the ternary Goldbach conjecture is certainly true. It is known that um, every odd number is the sum of three prime numbers. But what we don't know is like the binary Goldbach conjecture, so the, the original one about even numbers. So I think this this is um, called the Goldbach conjecture because there's a letter that um, Goldbach has written to Euler and he's, he's asked, is this possible? And I mean, it's an, it's an incredibly hard problem. So I looked at some problems that were sort of like this. I looked at, um, can you write numbers as a prime and something else. And this is this is part of additive this is what's called additive number theory. Can you uh, you ask problems about um can you take a number and write it as the sum of two or three or four or five or whatever interesting numbers. So so for example we know that any number can be written as the sum of four squares. So take any number you want, any integer, and you can write it as square plus square plus square plus square. So 21 would just be 16 plus 4 plus 1 plus 0. So, I mean, 0 is a square because it's 0 times 0. So, we, so that's, an exa- that's a really classical example from additive number theory. One thing that I was able to prove was I could show that um, every number out there is the sum of a prime and a square-free number. A square-free number is just a bunch of different primes multiplied together. It's not divisible by any squares. It's just... Um, like 30 is a square-free number because it's just 
2 times 3 times 5. But, for example, 12 is not a square-free number because 12 is, when you break it down, 3 times 2 times 2. So you've got a prime number that appears in there twice. You've got a square, basically. So it turns out that, yeah, no, you can't write uh, we, well, we don't know about the Goldbach conjecture, but we do know that um, you can take a number and you can write it as a prime plus a square free. There might be some condition somewhere. I'm, I can't even remember my research. It's been five years now. So <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, there's probably some, maybe it's for, no, I think, I think I proved it for maybe all numbers um, greater than, I don't know, seven or something. I'm, I'm just, yeah, um, I honestly cannot remember. That's why I forgive you. I, Sometimes I can't remember what's in my paper that came out yeah. a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. So, so in terms of what does Adrian do? What what what, what did his research cover? Um, yeah, I mean there was a bit of additive number theory. There was a bit of prime number distributions. I also did some stuff in graph theory. So looked at you know what's known as like expander graphs. So I looked at what sort of graphs make good networks. Yeah, and these are graphs again. These are not x-axis and y-axis graphs. Yes. These are dots connected by lines. These are mathematical graphs, yes. I want to take it back a long way. I want to sort of trace how you got to where you are today. What were you like as a child? Would we have ever guessed that Adrian would go on to do a PhD in pure mathematics? Mm. No. Um, You might realize this immediately from seeing that I went from number theory to options trading, but I can sort of find enjoyment in almost anything. There was a while there when I was younger that I wanted to be like uh, a music producer. And there was a, a time there where I wanted to be a rapper. And there was a time where I wanted to be an engineer. I think everyone goes through these sorts of phases where they just want to do, you know, all this different stuff. Uh, as a child, um, no, I, I think there were probably points in my life where you might look at me and say, uh, that guy's going to grow up and be a bit of a loser. Um, so, if for, for example, in, um, in high school, I was, uh, yeah, I fell in with like the wrong crowd in high school. So, um, yeah, I just went and, well, got in all sorts of trouble. And then uh, when we got, uh, I think... Towards the end of year 11, um, I had like a big bust up with, with some friends, with my girlfriend at the time, with, um, with my crowd, I suppose. And uh, yeah, I basically started teaching myself all the maths that I was supposed to know at that point because I hadn't paid any attention to any of my year 11 classes. And I immediately went from sort of failing every test because I you know, was showing up having done no preparation. I went from sort of failing every test to getting, you know, 95, 100% pretty, yeah, pretty, very quickly in sort of maths and physics, which I was also very interested in. So I really just threw myself into that. And it was a bit, yeah, as soon as I had, as soon as I got hooked at that point, I was just, I was just sort of in. Um, and I've never left since then. I went to uni and I just Started to do science and engineering, but I ditched the engineering and I just wanted to take as many maths courses as possible. So anything that wasn't maths, I ended up just uh, ended up getting cut and I would just um, try and fill my degree with as many maths courses as possible. So I guess you just liked it. You just ran into maths and just figured out you liked it. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit like that. It's like, I, it, you know, some, some people play soccer, some play, people play footy, some people play tennis, like... You're just like, yeah, this is this feels good. This is what I want to be doing. And I think subjects are similar. Like it's hard to explain, but uh, they're just tickling your brain in the, the right way. Uh, maths did that. I'd sit down, I'd do maths, and I'd think, yep, this is good. And I'd have a um, sort of an energy for it. Like I never got tired, and I still don't get tired when I'm doing maths. I can just uh, – I mean, there's not many problems I work on these days, but – I remember that whenever I did start working on a problem, say a couple of years ago, I would just look up and the clock would be, you know, it'd be seven hours later. So, uh, yeah, it's just the area that I fall into and I just do not get tired when I'm working on maths. Like I just really can find an endless amount of energy for it. 
But there are a lot of people who are interested in maths in high school or are even very good at it. Like even people who say to maths Olympiads and so on, but then don't go into maths in university. And I think maybe the most common reason for that is sort of career prospects. So I guess there was no pressure. You didn't feel any pressure to do something that would traditionally be a safer career option. Oh, uh, no, for sure I did. Um, I got the whole... Well, I, I grew up in Perth and I got the, the the spiel that I got was, hey, you're good at maths. You should become a mining engineer. It's like, you're good at maths. The thing at the moment where you're going to get the most amount of money uh, is going to be in mining engineering because it was, you know, it was during the mining boom in WA. I never got the, hey, you're good at maths. You should be a mathematician talk. I mean, that, I mean that's the most obvious one. What did you get? Did you get asked? Uh, did, well, did you get told what you should be? Yeah, I mean- and for my time, it was actuary. Yes. And I think for me personally, it was more because I think I really did display the signs of someone who would want to be an actuary. And that's why everyone was saying that. Yeah, I, th- I think there's heaps of people who are very clever at maths, but people aren't aware of. And it's not immediately obvious how you go from being good at maths to having a successful career. A lot of people who are good at mathematics also have the sort of the right logical brain um, to go into things like law and medicine and these are very high-profile careers. So they do get pushed that way um, for sure. Like that's – I mean, for a lot of people, that's sort of like the golden ticket, I suppose. But, I mean, if you're not interested in law, don't be a lawyer. And if you're not interested in helping people get better, don't be a doctor. I think that's the uh, – I think there's caveats to all this information. But did you have that realisation – at the time of going from high school to university or were you just, I'm going to do whatever I enjoy? Yeah. So that's, that's sort of how I roll. If I don't dig something, I'll just go and do something else. That's always how it's been. So, I mean, the difference about going into university was I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So I had enrolled in science and engineering because I thought, yeah, you know, I really like maths. I really like physics. Engineering seems to, or I've heard, combine both of them together. Yeah, that seems like a pretty pretty natural fit for me. But I just, oh, I couldn't stand any of the engineering courses. And I love the maths courses and the physics courses were okay. So what I do with my time is I just try and fill it with as many things as I like. Uh, you can't do that in every field. Like, I mean, it just so happens that maths is a very useful thing in today's world, which we'll talk about. At some point during this podcast, I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe I got lucky because I really like maths. Uh, maybe there's people out there who, you know, really like professional eating or, eat, you know, eating 50 hot dogs in five minutes or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, there's some career opportunities there, but it's, uh, yeah, it's probably, um, there's probably a bit of a bottleneck at some point. I mean- but it's really evident that you were hooked because you went on to do honours, right? And you, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you were supervised by um, Cheryl Prager. Is that true? Or do I? Nah, you're in, you, you, I don't, you know, I don't know where I... Yeah, you're incorrect. But uh, basically, in some sense, anybody who does... Uh, well, at the time, anyone who did honours or a PhD at UWA was supervised by Cheryl Prager in, in the sense that she was... Um, and. Well, I believe she's retired now, but for Cheryl, retired oh, probably she's, she's means- She's well and truly still, still oh, working absolutely. very hard. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure she is. So, um, yeah, but there, there was such like a- They are such a tight-knit group over at UWA um, in terms of like the sort of combinatorics, group theory, graph theory, all of that stuff. And Cheryl has sort of led so much of that research for a long time. So, I was, I was actually supervised by John Bamberg and Gordon Royal. So- yeah, they supervised me. Uh, actually, I remember one day I was looking for number theory projects. I wanted to do honours and I wanted to do something in number theory, but there's nothing really like that in Perth or many places in Australia. It, we're getting better. We definitely have more and more number theorists now. You can do plenty of interesting number theory things now in Australia. But um, I mentioned this, this to John Bamberg and he said, well, I have a project in mind that does have Good, a good amount of number theory has some flavors of number theory. It's still graph theory, but um, yeah, you'll get to do a good bit of number theory. And he wasn't lying. Um, it was, yeah, it was very enjoyable. And then I ended up going back to it during my PhD and having a couple of papers in that area of um, expanded graph theory as well. So 
Yeah, so yes, I did do honours. No, it wasn't with Cheryl, but uh, in some sort of synthetic way, it, it, it was. I mean, I know that the combinatorics department at UWA, they're really, they work together really well. And- they're, they're a family. They're a family is what they are. But then you, you're obviously really hooked again because you went on to do a PhD in ANU with Timothy Trudgeon, who is, I mean, today, one of the biggest names in number theory in Australia. Talk me through the decision to do a PhD and why at ANU, why with him? This is a funny, well, there's a funny story here. It's not really a funny story. People think, um, yeah, I got a, I copped a bit of flack for going to ANU for sure. Uh, basically, when I finished my honours, I took a full-time job at UWA teaching sort of numeracy skills and mathematics to to students who needed it for their degree. So say you have a lot of... Um, you have a lot of, uh, you know, chemistry students. Um, you have a lot of geology students. You have people in the social sciences. You have people everywhere in the world that need some element of mathematics in what they do. And I was employed by the university in a role to help them along, like direct them to get the skills they need to um, approach things in their field with a bit of a bit of um, mathematical flair. So while I held that role, I was looking for um, PhD positions. I definitely wanted to go and do some research. Uh, I always wanted to be an academic, and I was set on academia then. Uh, and then obviously it changed at some point, and we'll, I mean that'll we'll get to that at some point. But yeah, I was looking around, and originally I wanted to go overseas, and I got accepted to the University of Bristol for a PhD there. With Timothy Browning, so he's a he's a well known number theorist over in Bristol, uh, and I got accepted to do a master's at Oxford, sort of like a master's by coursework, but it had a lot of number theory courses, and I thought, oh, this could be interesting as well. So I had a few things lined up. I was also looking at Toronto. I was just um, I was looking around. I just wanted number theory basically, and it looked like I was going to have to get it somewhere else. And um, during this sort of time of like looking for number theory, this and that, I decided, well, the best way to do this is to get advice from people who had left Australia to become number theorists. And uh, I couldn't find Terence Tower's phone number publicly listed anywhere. So I had to um, I had to make do with Tim Trudgeon, who I believe won like a Monash award. And he went to Oxford and he did a PhD there with um, Roger Heath-Brown. And he looked at sort of the distribution of zeros of the Riemann zeta function, along with um, a bunch of very uh, of other interesting stuff. And I emailed him, and Tim Trudgeon was and is sort of especially receptive to any form of communication. So, you know, he's a sort of guy where you send him an email, um, you'll be receiving a novella back by lunchtime, talking about um, you know how him and the family is going along with all sorts of advice as to, you know, what he, you know, what he thinks you could do that, this sort of thing. And, and he'll, he'll throw in like a couple of maths problems as well, just to, just to sort of keep you going. But anyway, I reached out to him at the time and he gave me advice and he said, yeah, Bristol is a good place. You should also try here and you should, you should also try here. And um, have you thought about this? And then we had a lot of back and forth. And then one day he mentioned, oh, that he was, um, that he'd won a DECRA, like a discovery early Career Researcher Award. So this is what the Australian government gives out. They give out maybe a couple of hundred of these a year um, across all fields to, and these are for like young promising researchers to, you know, start their academic career once they're finished a postdoc somewhere usually. But yeah, they, um, they're given funds. They, they start at a university somewhere. They're, they get a PhD student, maybe a couple of honours students. Um, and yeah, so this was the position that Tim was in. And he told me that he was going to be at the ANU and he was looking for a PhD student. And that's when I thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice to just not go too far away from Australia? I just met, um, I just met a lovely girl who's now my wife. So there was, there was that. And, you know, she's very portable. She would have come over to uh, – she came to Canberra with me, so she would have come overseas with me as well for sure. Um, but, yeah, in the end I said, Tim, why don't I just be a PhD student? I mean, we already have a rapport. We, um, you know – as you know, as long as you want me as your PhD student, and he basically said, "Yeah, I think this is a done deal. I'll like let me just find out." And he went and looked into it, and it, it, this all happened very, very quickly. I sort of, uh, well, I cancelled. Um, 
were cancelled on the scholarship I had lined up for Bristol, which, um, yeah, I probably stepped on one one toe too many for sure. But you, you sort of, I guess you have to be prepared to do that, right? Like, this was the right thing for me. Yeah, I probably annoyed, you know, I probably annoyed a couple of people over there. But, I mean, that's the, the way it goes. So, yeah, in the end, um, I went to Canberra. I got to study number theory. I got to learn about the prime number theorem, the Riemann zeta function, all this stuff that I'd wanted to learn about for such a long time. And I mean, I, sure, I can pick up a book and do that anywhere, but it's different when you have mentorship from like a, a researcher in the field. When you know, when you can have one-on-one meetings to discuss this every week, it's um, yeah, it's a, it's the best. It's definitely the best way to learn something is from an experienced teacher, basically. So you were his first PhD student. Yeah. And Tim at the time was not a big name in number theory research in Australia. He just had his DECRA and he'd just come back from a postdoc in Canada. Yeah. He hadn't had a PhD student before. I doubt he'd even had an honours student before. I think this was, you know, the beginning of his academic career. And um, yeah, Tim is very inspiring. He he works on a, I would say he works on a similar wavelength to me, except that- um, like in the sense of the problems we work on, the way the way we organize ourselves, the way we structure things. Except he is like he's like me, sort of popped up on a whole heap of caffeine. Like he is just incredibly productive, astonishingly efficient. He's very very fast, and I think that's why over the last sort of seven or eight years that he's been in Australia, he has become a big name because everyone knows him. He introduces himself to absolutely everybody at every conference ever. And he collaborates and publishes prolifically. So he is just, he's nonstop. He's just, yeah. And I mean, he operates, he works like he's nonstop. But I know for a fact that when it gets to sort of 4.30 or 5 o'clock each day, he just turns the maths off and he just goes home and he's just, he's just himself and he's with his family and he does all sorts of other things. He's very into, you know, cooking and politics and classical music and opera and cricket and all of these things like he is a bit of a yeah he's a bit of a sort of recreational polymath um yeah maths is his day job he doesn't stay up all night solving problems he just knows how to get things done in the business day yeah tim trudgeon was a plenary speaker at the austin mess last year and i I, unfortunately i didn't get the chance to personally meet him but you know i definitely got that impression about him I did. I did get to meet all six of his PhD students, his current PhD students. There's something to be said. Like it, it's important in academia to get out of the office and meet people. And he, like I said, he talks with everyone. He meets everyone. Like the PhD students, they just come to him. Like he could probably have twice as many if there was funding available. Like ah, uh, yeah. I mean, he is. He's a prolific builder of of that research group. And he's at UNSW Canberra now, as yes, you probably know. Yeah, Yep. Which is probably like the oddest place that you would expect to find the number, like a number That's theory true. research yeah. pop up in Australia. But he's done it. He's there and he's done it. I think the reason why he has six PhD students at the moment, and I do need to fact check that, but I think the reason why he has six at the moment is because that's the limit to the number of PhD students you can have at UNSW. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. Let's go with that. That sounds uh, yeah, that, that sounds, sounds a lot cooler plausible. than the truth could be. Yeah, that's a, that's yeah. As, that's as uh, that's as good as as the truth could be. So let's just go with that. I have a look at what you did during your PhD. You know, you published thirteen papers, right? And there. At least to me, they're not exactly baby results. Like I know earlier on you said they're like little hanging fruit, but it's not like 13 papers where, you know, the first paper is when n equals 2 and the second paper is when n equals 3. Like they're not exactly that baby results. And they're also in a broad range of things. Like you did a bit of graph theory and you know, all the different things in number theory that we talked about earlier. And you're sure in the PhD a typical PhD student in mathematics does publish a few papers, but 13 is a lot for anyone. But then on top of that, you did quite a bit of teaching, and then you did quite a lot of outreach as well. Like, you are the PhD student that I aspire to be. That's very kind. <laughs> I, I <don't, laughs> you know, so, I mean, I can only imagine that after you finished up, like, surely there were a lot of opportunities open for you in academia. Sure. I mean, yeah, I think I could have made it work. Like you just surmised, I think uh, 
the the planets were definitely aligned at that point, and I could have, yeah, I could have gone through and had a good academic career. But um, no, I wanted I wanted to do something else. I definitely copped a lot of flack for sort of stepping away from academia. There were a lot of people that would say, "Oh, why are you doing that? Why are you why are you going into finance? Like, why you know why?" Uh, in a sort of derogatory or even like condescending way. Yeah, I mean, the reason it look it's it's unfair of me to call them baby results, and it's it's unfair of me to like downplay um, what I did during those three years because because I did work hard um, for sure. And thirteen papers is yeah, it's a ton of it's a ton of papers, but all I can say is I was operating in a field that I loved. Like this was where I needed to be. This is exactly what I wanted to do. And it wasn't work. It just, I would just sit down at that desk in the morning and it would just happen. And I'd read and I'd write and it would just happen. If I was in any, like studying any other topic in the world, it wouldn't have happened because this was just exactly where my interests were. This was, these were the problems that were right for me um, they weren't too, you know, a lot of mathematicians work on the development of theories and, and more abstract, pure stuff. But I was looking at, um, I was, you know, approaching problems in number theory using a bit of calculus, a bit of complex analysis. Like I was trying to use very fundamental tools. A lot of my research papers, the, a lot of the techniques come from first year calculus. You know, I'm using, I'm trying to use things that um, that we we learn and a very like that we learn very early on and apply them to ideas in number theory, and um, yeah, and these are these ideas work. I like simple ideas. I'm not, I don't operate at a deep level. I get lost in papers. I'm, I can't read like super deep abstract textbooks because I'll get bored. That's just who I am. I can't work on that really deep abstract level of mathematics. But I operate really well at um, you know. Elementary calculus, probability statistics, like these sort of like the the really high level stuff, you know, where I can explain what I'm working on to my wife or maybe my eldest daughter, but probably not, uh, not yet anyway. But yeah, I mean, this is where I operate. And I found at that level, I just, well, I used to just be very good at finding problems that would just hit the right note in terms of like length in terms of my skill set, in terms of what I was interested in. And then those three things just, they just, they just made it all happen. As for the outreach, um, I mean, that just helped to break up the research because sometimes it just, it didn't matter how interesting a problem was. Like I just, I just sat there for too long. Like I just had to get out and do something a little bit different. I mean, I guess now is when I ask the million dollar question, which is why of all things, options trading. Or I don't think that was exactly what you were doing. Like that was the first thing at Opti. You went to Optiver right away, but you weren't always an options trader, if I'm not mistaken. Or well, is there something no. else I'm making up? No, yeah, yep. This is. I think this is strike two on the number of made up things. Uh. <laughs> um, no, I was. Well, you start and you start doing the training program there, so maybe it's not so made up. But for the first three months at Optiver as a graduate trader, you are doing the training program. Well, I went from basically, yeah, so w- why? For sure. Why would I go and do something different? And um, there's no profound answer. There's, uh, I was, I was a bit sick and tired of academia. And yeah, I was, I was a bit like tired and disenchanted by academia. It seemed to me like, um, well, how, do, how can I put this? I didn't feel like academia was going to be a place where I was going to be incentivized to try new creative things. And that might sound really strange. And maybe it's more a reflection of who I am personally. But, you know, if, the, if we're being measured by things like publication counts, um, for example, then moving outside what you're comfortable in, like if you're already in a field where you're a very prolific publisher, it could be um, it's a risk to go and learn something new because it might take a little bit of time for you to get that first publication out. Uh, it might not suit you very well and you might not you might not thrive there. So there was um I felt like in terms of careers, there was a 
I felt like if I went into academia and I loved what I was doing at the time, you know, working on number theory problems, but I was sort of worried that I might get another few years in and be like, okay, I'm done with this now. I mean, this is a common theme for me. I get, I can, I can get bored and want to try completely new things. Um, ask my wife. Um, she'll, yeah, she'll be like, oh, he's probably work, you know, he's probably working on some data science stuff now, or he's probably like looking at the Google PageRank algorithm again, trying to make it work for sports teams or something like that. Like she's like, I've always got these, you know, I just wanted, oh, I'll try this and I'll try that. So I'm always jumping between different ideas. But um, speaking of jumping between different ideas, where was I? Yeah, I was talking about um, how I was worried that three years in, I might be, I might get the idea, oh, I don't really want to work on these problems in number theory anymore. But this is a really crucial time for me in terms of getting promoted from, you know, lecturer to senior lecturer or wherever I would be at the time. And um, maybe I just would realize that the risk was not worth it. Uh, some might argue that in finance, you're not really incentivized to try anything new and creative. Ah, of course, like the, I mean, if you've, if, ever read, if you've ever read like Freakonomics, for example, they have a, a well-known piece on how fund managers are never really incentivized to do anything except buy the S&P 500. But uh, yeah, for I mean, at least in finance, you get compensated to not take that risk or to 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 not um, well in finance, you get compensated to not act on every single whim you get. You know, I can't walk into the office and I can't say like if I walk into the office, I'm not really allowed to say, oh, I'm going to work on this today because there are just things that need to get done. And really, my job as a trader is to um, it's to make profits for the company. It's also to provide a service to the financial market, like where as market makers at Optiva, we provide liquidity for anyone who wants to trade. But yeah, at the end of the day, like we're a, we're a profit generating company, just like a restaurant. Um, yeah, I was just, uh, yeah, I was sort of worried that I was going to get boxed in into what I was doing because I know I knew like I know that I was good at what I was doing during my PhD, but I also wanted to just learn some new stuff as well. So did you have any reservations going into, you know, it, because this is something completely new, like you're not, well, at least on the surface, it doesn't seem like this is something you've trained to do. Like I know Octava to be a company that's very aggressively looking for maths graduates. Yep. We'll talk about that. But like, what, did you have any concerns? About how I was going to, like if I was going to be any good, you mean? Or, or yeah, or if you, if you have the proper finance background, for example. Well... Well, this was the thing. When I was looking for jobs, a lot of places would say, we want somebody who knows the Black-Scholes formula and can query a SQL database and can program in R and can do these things. And this really frustrates me because they're not, well, they're not looking for a particular person. They're looking for some, a particular skill set. And that skill set's attached to some person. Uh, Optiva is... Optiva, if you look at how they hire, they're looking for the right people. I didn't have to know any finance. They just said, do you like solving problems? Good. Do you have a maths background? Probably indicated by one of these degrees. Good. Like they're really just looking for the right person. And then they, they have, you know, there's the whole interview process where they try and tell, well, they, they try and work out, is this person going to be a good fit here at Optiva? So we have a training program there. That's where you learn all of your, um, that's where you, that's where I learned. I mean, I, I didn't know any finance before I applied and they just taught me everything on the job. And uh, this comes up quite a bit, actually. Like it's, um, it's easy to teach a mathematician another field than it is to teach someone from another field the mathematics. Like mathematicians are sort of well-placed to go into different roles um, and pick up a little bit of what's going on in that field and then apply their sort of maths brain to it. Um, yeah, it was, that's sort of how Optiva operates as well. We'll teach the finance, you know, you bring the, you bring the maths, you bring the problem solving. I mean, we hear that a lot, right? I mean, especially, you know, so universities saying to year 12 students and like, oh, if you go into maths, you can pursue many different careers. You don't have to just be a mathematician. And on your point about, you know, it's easier to teach a mathematician finance than the other way around. But doesn't that sort of imply that there's something fundamentally wrong with the way that we train? commerce graduates, for example, like don't, doesn't that mean that they should have more of a maths component in their degrees? Yeah. Um, I mean, 
Probably yes. It depends on the degree. It depends on the university. But if you look at a lot of, um, if you look at a lot of the like the way that a lot of courses are structured, somebody who does say a science degree at this university, say you need, um, it will say you need to complete at least two maths courses from this list. So what they do is they encourage, or sometimes they even stipulate that um, students doing science degrees need to do a couple of mathematics courses, but there's no, there's nothing, there's no additional course that threads the mathematics together with, you know, the, the chemistry that they're doing or, or um, I can't even think of fields because it's a Saturday <laughs> and my brain is fried. But, uh, but do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, we'll, we'll make sure that all our graduates can go out into the workforce and they're, you know, they're, they know the mathematics behind what they do. And we'll do that by making them do a, a couple of mathematics courses. But it's not enough because they do the mathematics courses and then they just sort of disappear into the background. They dissolve over time because they're not um, – there's nothing sort of threading that information back into what, like, the students are currently doing. I mean, it's – the probably more ideal is to have mathematics for chemistry courses, mathematics for commerce courses. And I know that they do in some places, but they're very early on. They don't regularly, like – they don't have a mathematics for commerce course like every single year where they're sort of trying to thread everything together. So how has doing a PhD in pure mathematics made you a better or potentially even worse options trader? Uh, yeah, that's a, well, I mean, I use prime numbers all the time. Uh, if a, yeah, if a stock trades at a prime number value, you buy it. And if it's composite, then you, then you sell it. Uh, well, there's obviously some high-level job stuff. Communication is very important. And during my PhD, I gave a lot of talks. And now I can give a lot of talks at work if I need to, or I can communicate more effectively. That's sure, that's useful. The mathematics itself, okay, a lot of it, a lot of it, you know, prime numbers, gone. I, you know, I, prime numbers only come up recreationally at work. Uh, but I guess like, yeah, one example was, um, oh, I guess an example I can think of is I can approximate things very quickly. And uh, because I worked in number theory and I looked at sort of explicit methods in number theory where I was just trying to come up with like, um, uh, I was just trying to, you know, prove that there's a prime between cubes as so long as like, yeah, there's a prime between n cubed and n plus one cubed as long as n's bigger than e to the e to the 33 or whatever. To get like those numbers, I need to take very big precise formulas and truncate them or like cut them into approximations. And um, yeah, this is quite useful in options trading because in options trading, you need to make decisions extremely quickly. And uh, you're like, okay, do I want to buy this or do I want to buy this or do I want to sell this or do I want to buy this and sell this? Like there's combinations and um, something that helps you make these decisions quickly is um, being able to calculate quickly being able to um, approximate, you know, use off-the-cuff, shoot-from-the-hip style estimates. So, um, yeah, one example, um, we have this uh, at work. We often talk about like um, we, you – so with options, if you buy an option, you pay some amount of money to hold that option every day. So – and it's called theta. So whenever, you, whenever you're, you've bought an option, you pay theta on it and you lose a little bit every day, but – you expect to make it back based on how the market moves or whatever. But the sort of ongoing cost is this thing called theta. It's just derivative of option with respect to time, basically. We In options trading, they have all these funny names like theta and vega and gamma. And um, they're called the Greeks, though I don't think vega is actually a Greek, but um, they're called the Greeks and they're all just derivatives of the option value with respect to... Um, some sort of underlying component or, you know, there's, and there's plenty of like higher order derivatives that options traders talk about. But basically I spend all my time with a bunch of people talking about the various derivatives of the value of the options in our, in the portfolio. So it's just a lot of that. And one way to work out how the prices of the options are going to change every day, and there's some very simple linear approximations you can use. So there's this big daddy formula called the Black-Scholes formula, which you know spits out your options prices, but um, all of the Greeks, you can get very all of these like derivatives that we look at, that we stress about, that we that we sort of think about all day. You can develop 
and I, I have done at work, very quick formulas to, to help you make sort of decisions on the spot. So, and I'm able to do that because of the, you know, because I worked in explicit estimates and number theory. I'm very quick. Like, I know that the square root of one plus X for small X is roughly, you know, one plus X on two. So like I know how to, I know like a lot of linear approximations for different functions and um, it just helps you break down like these big complicated formulas very quickly and just get like rough linear estimates, which are, I mean, very often they're just good enough for what you're doing. Because I think, you know, we often tell, especially high school kids, like the skills that you learn in maths are transferable. But I don't think people actually understand what we mean by that. And I think especially the year 12 kids sort of just takes on faith that that's true. Or they think that what we mean by the skills are transferable is that you will really be only buying the options if they're prime number priced. I mean, compared to your colleagues who may not have a maths background, other than the stuff you said, which is, do you think you think in a different way from them or you operate in a different way in a, or in a way that they couldn't pick up? From, from my colleagues? Yeah. No, I mean, they all come from very, uh, from, you know, quantitative disciplines like um, engineering and physics. Uh, they're, I mean, we all operate on a very similar level. I mean, it's not where they've come from. It's like what they, it's how, it's how they think. It's how they approach the problems they solve. For sure, we're all a little bit different, but um, yeah, we're all mathematically inclined and we're also all very intuitive people as well. And this is something which is probably downplayed or not spoke of a lot, but um, yeah, intuition is very important in trading, in mathematics. Like, I mean, it's probably just pattern recognition to some extent, but uh, many times I see a problem in maths when I was doing research and I was like, I know, you know, I just had this feeling of this strategy is going to work. Um, this, I oh, know you just, induction is going to do it here. Like you just, um, I would just know. And I'm, I'm sure that you've experienced this. A lot of people just like, oh, I think, I think what I need to use is this approach. It's um, yeah, it's pattern recognition. You've, you've just done so many, worked on so many problems in your time. You just know what's going to work. Options trading is very similar. Some people are more intuitive than others. Uh, and that's not a that's not a bad thing. The people who are more intuitive, um, ma- perhaps they're not as great as working in the abstract. I'm not sure. I'm definitely not great at working in the abstract. Abstract. Um, but yeah, just one just one thing. When there is this um, thing that gets told to students, and that thing that you've mentioned is mathematics can take you anywhere, or you can do anything with maths. And this is probably the laziest the, the laziest thing you can say. To a student, because you're promising them the world, and you're giving them absolutely no useful advice on on how to get it. I mean, we should say things like the way that the world is developing. Thing, you know, a lot of companies these days are employing artificial intelligence techniques and machine learning techniques, and statist- and new statistical methods. And computers are so much faster. So if you do mathematics and you couple it with um, a fairly good, um, you know, an okay programming background, and you're prepared to, you know, learn about the field that you're going into, you should be able to solve mathematical problems and solve other problems in that field that people without your mathematical background can't, basically. So when you go into a workplace and you've got all these mathematical tools and ideas and the ability to sort of synthesize things and and work, you know, work in a completely different framework, you're very well placed to solve problems that they that they couldn't do. And it's not a it's not a straight line. It it there's no job description on seek that says mathematicians wanted. It it just doesn't work like that. And this is what I realized when I was applying for jobs was that I had to um yeah, I, I would type in mathematician. I type in mathematics, and it'd all be mathematics teaching jobs, which of course are very important. But that wasn't what I was looking for. I thought, hey, isn't math supposed to take me anywhere? But it wasn't doing that. So, um, in fact, the closest thing was Optiva that said we want people who are good at mathematics and can solve problems. That was the single. Mo- that was the single closest thing to what I had been prompt what I had been promised, you know, maths can take you anywhere because everywhere else it was, do you know about SQL databases? 
and um, do you know how to build a neural network? And these were things that I didn't know at the time. I do now because there um, there are things that are very specific to different industries, and then there are some techniques that are done across all industries. And um, at the time of graduating as a PhD student, I was not industry ready. But uh, thankfully, Optiver didn't really care, but a lot of other companies do. And I think that's why it's so hard for math students or maths graduates to transition from their degree to industry. There's there's just no like, there's just no recipe for it. There's no, there's no one way. It's about being flexible. It's about learning about the job you're applying for. It's about being good at programming. It's about knowing statistics. And it's it's about getting on forums and getting a handle on what people in the field and the industry already know. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work on top of that degree. But yeah, when you finish a degree in pure mathematics, yeah, you're like you're not ready to go into industry whatsoever. And Optiver are, are, are quite smart in just being like, well, we'll just get them ready because we'll find the right people and then train them for Optiva rather than all those right people being trained for you know specific different things optiva will just get in at that early stage where there's like a larger pool of people and they'll work with what they have there yeah i, I completely relate with that because when i finished my undergrad and tried to look for a job because i didn't do my phd right away yes i found that you know no one is looking for a mathematician you know to do yeah. non-mathematician things and the fantasy that a lot of undergrad students in mathematics still have because they were told this, like you said, this lazy statement at the, in high school that maths can take you anywhere. So what advice do you have to any, say, high school students who are considering pursuing a maths degree or even for any current undergraduate students in mathematics? Yep. I would just like to give like a little bit of advice. Again, I've probably already done this, but a bit of advice to all the math students out there. And that advice is to be flexible. Don't just try and map out your path too early. And we were talking before about Tim Trudgeon. He is somebody who never thought he'd be at UNSW Canberra, but he is operating as you know this incredible mathematician. He's got this massive, uh, he's got this massive research group there, and. He, you know, if you if you think that you have to, you know, if he had thought that his life was going to be at the ANU, if he'd locked himself into that, he never would have ended up at UNSW Canberra with the group that he's currently got. I guess what I'm trying to say is, mathematics is not equip. Being a mathematician is not equivalent to doing a PhD, doing a postdoc, you know, getting a you know getting a research grant and going from there and eventually becoming a professor. Being a mathematician is about doing maths every day, doing maths that you love and enjoy every single day. The way to get there is to be flexible, is to understand in advance that that's how it's going to be. So for me, at one point it was, well, the next step for me in you know being a mathematician is to become an options trader and do new mathematical things and think in new ways. So... Don't, so my advice is don't map your future out. Just understand what you like, understand what you enjoy, and just try and do that. And just think whatever I'm, wherever I am, I just want to be doing maths every single day. My other bit of advice is more practical. When you leave university, please make sure you can program. If you're having trouble choosing a language, just Python. I've done a few different programming languages, C, Java, etc. But Python is the number one language in my opinion very nice to use very good at working with the data which um it's very likely to happen if you do end up going into industry but you know even if not like there's plenty of problems in maths where you know there's plenty of there's plenty of computation done in mathematics i know a lot of my number theory papers we did a fair bit of um a fair bit of programming for do i have any other advice write and talk lots is my final bit of advice while you're doing your PhD or just your undergrad, keep a blog, give a seminar, just write about maths, talk about maths, just keep doing it continuously. I, I knew a guy who 
one way of doing it was he would just he went he did like a core he took a course on topology and wrote it into a book as he went so every lecture he went to he'd like write it down and then try and give it a narrative like at the end of it like to make the concept stick but yeah writing and talking about mathematics just make that part of your everyday do you still consider yourself a mathematician i mean do you think you'll ever go back into academia or do you feel like you're going to go into something completely different from now on I don't know what I'm going to do in the future. I'm still at Optiva and I'm enjoying it there. And I still think I'm a mathematician. I inverted a matrix at work yesterday. So I think that counts for something. Um, Yeah, I still get to do interesting mathematical things at work. And to me, that's what being a mathematician is about. Do I do interesting mathematical things? Am um, Am I approaching things in a rigorous way? And the answer is yes. So, yep, I do still see myself as a mathematician. One day, I'm sure I'll go back to academia. Maybe really? not in the traditional, maybe not in the traditional sense, but like um, I really think that something can be done with this whole academia versus industry thing that's hap- that happens in mathematics and probably happens in in a lot of fields as well. But uh, yeah, people sort of think, okay, you go into academia. Or industry, and um, I'm sure you'll have other speakers. I mean, Ben Ben Burton's one example of um, somebody who who knows that you don't just walk, step into you know the industry room and never leave. Like you can go back and forth between the rooms, right? Yeah. Interestingly, we didn't even we didn't talk about that with Ben Burton, but yeah, Ben because Ben did have a a short stint in finance. Yes. Yeah. That that's right. Yeah. I I think it's worth. Like academia and industry are a lot closer than people think. I gave a talk at um, the Ostermess Early Career Researcher Workshop a year or so ago, and um, yeah, it was all about how you can do, you can be a mathematician out there in the world. Like, I think people really hone in on universities as the only place where they can do interesting, exciting mathematics, but actually, you can do it out in the workforce, but it's harder. It's harder because the problems are not as well defined. It's you don't get, you know, like in academia, you can find people asking that, you know, making conjectures in their papers or asking questions at the end of their papers. In the in industry, you have to you have to sort of um spell out these questions yourself. Like you have to be like, okay, you know, what's gonna make this algorithm faster or or, or like uh how do I, you know, how am I gonna price this thing properly? Like what how do I break it down? Like there's the questions there aren't they're just not being asked but you have to like find you have to find the questions and then and then you have to answer them it's very different but you can still do interesting exciting mathematics outside of a university and you're still a mathematician and i mean you're doing mathematics so the only thing that makes it hard i think to go back to academia is that your academic cv wouldn't look very good because all of the research you've done is now a company's intellectual property you can't exactly put it on the archive or anything like that. You said something very interesting earlier on, which is that you said that you still do things in a rigorous way. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is if somebody, and this is very true at Optiva, but if someone asks you a question or asks you why you think a certain way, I don't just go, well, I just do. Like, there's always going to be, by rigor, I just mean the trail of reason doesn't end. So we have a lot of like conversations at Optiva that descend into like, well, maybe not descend. Yeah. Okay. Descend like all the way back to axioms because there's a lot of like, um, why do you think this? Oh, but if this is so, then what about this? We think in, um, yeah, I think mathematicians in general think in very rigorous ways and they're not just happy to like, I mean, you're not convinced by experiment. There's always um, got to be a reason for what you do. I think that's what I mean by thinking rigorously. Okay, so I mean, since you still consider yourself a mathematician, and, and this is the question we ask all of our guests at the end of the podcast: is uh, to complete the sentence, a mathematician is someone who. I, I think a, a mathematician is someone who doesn't answer a question with just because. So a mathematician always has to have a reason. A mathematician has to say, "Well, it's." Because of such and such, it's because uh, you know the square root of pi is blah. Like there's a 
there's a reason for it. So mathematicians are people who think about things in a deep way. They're never satisfied with, you know, they, they never find a flaw to their thinking. They're always going sort of deeper and deeper and deeper. Many thanks to Adrian for talking to us for this episode. We put a link to Adrian's blog in the show notes. This episode was produced by Alex Su and myself. We'll be back soon with another interview. The Neumann Talk is a podcast produced by students and staff from the School of Mathematics and Statistics at UNSW Sydney and hosted by me, Yudi Bunyamin. Follow UNSW Maths and Stats on Facebook or Instagram to see updates on the latest episodes, as well as other exciting news from our school. If you've been listening to our podcast, then we'd love to hear from you. Send me a tweet or a message on Twitter at Yudi underscore Bunyamin. Let us know who you are and if there's something one of the winners talked about that really resonated with you, or even if you have any questions about mathematics of your own.